He's a rehab doctor from Chicago. She's an emergency medicine doctor from the Twin Cities. Together, we're examining the health equity emergency. Inviting voices for change without the cue cards. I'm Dr. Carrie Haley. I'm Dr. Stephen Jackson. And And this this is Off the the Charts. Charts. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, today we have two guests in person, which is something the new world for us. But um, mm-hmm. we have two um, local paramedics who work in the pre-hospital setting. So these are the people who come to your house when you call 911. Um, and I'm just going to let them introduce themselves and we're going to have a great conversation here today. Hi, my name is Nella. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for having us. So this is my eighth year as a paramedic. Most of that was spent working um, pre-hospital for a hospital-based system. And I've had about one year working as a community paramedic for Regents Hospital. Um, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate having you. Uh, my name is Josh Garibunda. I'm a paramedic firefighter. I work for the city of St. Paul. Um, I do have some pre-hospital experience working uh, for a pri- uh, private service outside of the city of St. Paul, but I've been working at Paramedic for a few years, and thanks for having us. This is great. I'm looking forward to, to diving in here. Um, I'm just curious, how did you guys get into paramedics and, I guess, firefighting as well, Josh? When you- so I kind of surprisingly jumped into it. 2010, 2011, I moved to St. Paul and Judge Cervantes here from St. Paul kind of recommended that I go through the St. Paul Fire EMS Academy, Station 51. I got my EMT during the summer 2011 there and it just kind of took off and I've been around here ever since. Yeah, me and Nell actually have a very similar um, introduction to EMS. We both came through the Pathways program through the city of St. Paul. I was a little bit older uh, when I came through. I had already had like a full career and I, I only uh, kind of transitioned after uh, doing a speaking tour around the country. I was working in Colorado uh, wow. disaster relief and <laughs> ran to some firefighters when I was out there and they're like, you should really think about becoming a firefighter. And I was like, oh, well, I'll see if the city of St. Paul has a volunteer department. And so I came back here a little research later, found out they didn't. I really did get my EMT. And so I was like, okay, how can I do this? And then I ran into the Pathways program, and uh, that's how I got uh, on this path. Uh, so before uh, I became an EMT to become a firefighter, I became a paramedic because I was still not hired yet as a firefighter. So I was like, oh, let's just keep going. Yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. And so just if you guys would want want to maybe explain a little bit more to what the Pathways program is. So part of one of my other roles is one of the assistant medical directors at Regions EMS. So I have a little bit of background knowledge about the Pathways through St. Paul um, has offered, but maybe so our listeners have a little bit more of an idea of what the program is. So the program has changed over the years. Um, When I started, it was an EMT course where you would get paid to go to school to be an EMT. And then also they would provide clinicals for you. It was specifically directed towards low income um, people of color, women, immigrants who lived locally to have an opportunity to gain some sort of opening into a career. And then hopefully they were hoping would also um, kind of project them into the fire service and diversify the department more. 
Yeah, I think when it originally started with the city, it was through a uh, parks and rec program. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was um, associated with job readiness skills. Um, but there has, it was identified as a, uh, a program because there was this whole lack of diversity and the lack of a conduit for uh, diverse communities to get into EMS. And so this was a, a it was true, like uh, a pipeline um, mm-hmm. to uh, the emergency medical services, mm-hmm. healthcare, and um, uh, pre hospital uh, services. Is this something that's easy to get into? Like if, if, if we have listeners, uh, especially if we have a lot of listeners that are interested in the pathway program, what's the best way to sort of get involved? Well, with, uh, with, uh, with the, path, the program me and Alec went through, um, they're, they're currently right now taking applications for their summer course. So if you're interested, um, you can jump on the city of St. Paul website and find the search, uh, EMS Academy. And, um, there's a criteria you have to be in the, uh, age range, um, to qualify. Uh, but most young adults, uh, 18 to 22, something like that, uh, they can, they can apply. Um, it is a, a paid position, like Noah said. Um, but the, the idea of having a pathway program, um, it, in EMS is still kind of a newer, pro- a newer idea. Mm-hmm. Minneapolis has a program as mm-hmm. well. Uh, nationwide, uh, these kind of pathway pipeline programs are starting to come up and be very successful models. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, there's always funding issues. There's, there's issues with finding accreditation and, and working with colleges and universities to get the programs up and running. Um, and the sustainability, just like you may, or uh, may, may know, uh, listeners may know that there's a shortage of paramedics and EMTs around the country. Mm-hmm. And, um, if, uh, right now is the time where we're, uh, we need more of these kind of programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, they're definitely, they're out there. Um, sometimes they're few and far between. They're usually concentrated in the metropolitan mm-hmm. areas. Yeah, I think the metropolitan areas have a little bit better access to some funding or grants because a lot of this is funded by those types of programs or the city um, versus having it be funded like by like a private sector. Usually it's not as there haven't been as many successful stories from like a private sector. When yeah. I when I went through the program, it was heavily funded by grants. And okay. I think it, it was it was beneficial, but like a lot of the day-to-day stuff, a lot of the outreach, actually the people who had gone through the program prior and the people who were employed currently were doing the outreach and also helping kind of figure out where do we get funding? How do we reach out to people? How do we get more people interested in this? Sure. So it, it's it's changed over the years, but I think you're right, Josh. The funding piece is definitely one of the more difficult aspects. I want to kind of get into... Why isn't there a lot of diversity traditionally in, in the field of, you know, I guess the, the paramedic field, so to speak, uh, even before switching those gears? Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of being exposed to things that you want to, you know, you want to be, so to speak. You know, you hear you can't be what you can't see, number one. And uh, a lot of times it's not a question of ability when it comes to you know, marginalized communities, it's normally, you know, well, you, you didn't see the answers before the test came out as an example, before you took the test or, you know, you're not connected in the network that opens up the opportunity. And uh, I think programs like the Pathway Program and many others out there are just an example of, you know, getting people involved in something that perhaps they didn't think they could be involved in. And now this sounds like a great opportunity for a lot of people. 
absolutely seeing it is believing. And uh, I'll tell you when I became a firefighter, uh, it was to um, uh, a little bit surprised to some to people I know because I knew I know a lot of adults, and a lot of them were just like, "I've never met a black firefighter." Wow! I personally didn't know any <laughs> black firefighters when I was in Colorado. Those were the first firefighters I've ever interacted with, and hmm. uh, I was like, "Tell me a little bit more about your profession." And as they were telling me about their profession, I was like, "Oh, you know, I can see how some of my life skills and my life experiences are very transferable here." You know, uh, I came from outdoor recreation. I could see a lot of those um, skills very transferable. And I was like, oh, you know, I could, let me, let me do, take a little better look. So visual, um, being able to see it, being able to see a touch, hear stories from other people um, from your community or people who look like you um, does create that access. Um, and that's still a barrier uh, because we don't have the stories. Here in Minnesota, it's even more so of a barrier. I just came back from a national conference in New Orleans with black firefighters from all over the country. And um, they, the demographics is different because mm-hmm. some of their fire departments, they're about 60% people of color on their part, departments mm-hmm. uh, in D.C. and Maryland, um, some other places. So no, they have hundreds of firefighters, um, many women firefighters. So there's they, they have these demographics. We're just more limited here with our, just because of uh, the racial composition of our, you know, our state. Hmm. Nella, what has been your experience as a paramedic uh, in this community and both good and bad? Tell us, tell us a couple of things that are top of mind for you. So I knew that I had wanted to do something in healthcare out of high school. I didn't know what, what that was. I spent some time working in home respite care and then also medical translating. And I did that for a while. It was great. Um, I definitely think a lot of those skills transferred. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was nice. But when I, when I jumped into the EMS Academy, I went in blind. I didn't know anyone who had ever done this before, worked in public safety at all. The class itself was diverse the one that I went through. But then when we started doing our clinicals and we started doing ride-alongs on ambulances, Mm -hmm. I was the only girl. And I was just surrounded by people who didn't look like me, people who didn't have the same life experience. Um, There was a lot of like, well, explain this and explain that and explain this. And communication style was also very different. So there's like some fumbles with that. And now this is my eighth year as a medic working for private EMS, at least for BLS kind of sector, it's pretty 50-50 for men and women, but not as far as color. Primarily, it's just Caucasian people working. It's weird because we also serve the suburbs and less like the actual cities of St. Paul, Minneapolis. I mean, we do go into those areas, Mm -hmm. but most of the patients that we see often are people who are low income, immigrants, um, elderly people who are handicapped, um, people who don't speak English maybe, who don't know how to utilize primary care or other stuff. So they heavily rely on the 911 system and our staff doesn't always reflect those people. So I think that like, Empathy and understanding is huge being like a healthcare provider. And if you don't have some sort of intersectionality with your patients, the care is just not going to be the same. Yeah, I think that's a 
really, I mean, that's spot on. And what do you, both of you can speak to this. Like, what do you think some of the barriers are other than maybe just the access to the knowledge of it, of the profession of EMS? What are some barriers do you think that both women or people of color have in entering this field? I mean, there's just, there's a lot of cultural barriers. I mean, I would say that where I think I see a lot of young uh, EMTs and paramedics kind of stumble and struggle a little bit is navigating the cultural nuances uh, with your peers uh, and in the workplace uh, environment, because uh, we work very uh, autonomously. We work, we, work, <laughs> we, give a, we, 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 have, we go out in uh, a truck with two people, uh, sometimes four for some departments. And uh, we have very intimate um, uh, scenarios where we're helping people with their, their life emergencies, um, low acuity, high acuity. And uh, you have to be able to figure out those ways to communicate with your partner. And that partner who you work with, they may be from South Dakota. They may be from Apple Valley. And you spent most of your life in, um, you know, uh, West Saint, uh, East St. Paul in our metropolitan area. So I think some of the cultural nuances are really challenging. Uh, one of the struggles that the the the, path, the St. Paul program, Pathway program had was they had all these uh, people passing their EFT, uh, but when they went to go apply for work, they didn't have any work experience, so no one was hiring them. So mm-hmm. sitting in uh, their own BLS program, so they could they can get patient contact hours and and they can run calls and. But but they needed to do that because a lot of the providers out there just was, weren't hiring them. They they uh, they didn't have some of the same uh, community people who can vouch for them. Mm-hmm. Say, oh yeah, that's my brother. That's my sister. You know, that's a cousin. He's a good. He's good. Uh, so I think one of the big the barriers for people who obtain their certification um, initially is just figuring out how to work in the workplace and um, and then staying in the workplace because. A lot of people just kind of just get um, stressed out and they just leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for me, just on a personal level, going through paramedic school, I had a ride along with a local service, and uh, my preceptor, who I was doing the ride along at the end of the day, goes, "I don't think this is for you." And I was like, "Oh no, what did I do wrong?" <laughs> so the, my immediate thing was like, "I thought I messed something up. Um, maybe I like messed a drug dose up or whatever." And, you know, we had a conversation and he said that the, this line of work wasn't for me based off of my demeanor. Your demeanor, um, huh? My demeanor. Um, so if you look at me, like I look, okay. I'm a soft person. <laughs> so, um, and like people can see, you know, there's soft and hard and whatever, but, um, man, I took that to heart and I was like, I really don't think this is probably going to be for me if like. You, you don't just, um, can I use bad words on here? You can't just be a badass. You know <laughs> what I mean? You have to like get there. So that gate, that kind of rattled my confidence for years. Because mm. again, mm-hmm. um, eight years ago, most of the time I was still the only female on the truck or whatever mm-hmm. at the station. So they'd look at me for like these soft skills, but like... They wouldn't, they wouldn't see me as an equal. Um, they didn't feel mm-hmm. that I could lead and that I could be in charge and that I could give direction. So eight years later, 
that's changed a little bit. I have some experience under my belt, but still you have these people who will question you just based off of the way you look Mm -hmm. and what they assume you bring to the table. And then the other aspect for me personally is um, I'm Bosnian. We have a very direct way of communicating. Mm -hmm. There's no passive aggressive. There's no sugar coating. (laughs) It's direct. I like that, by the way. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So coming from a woman and communicating to leadership who is primarily almost actually 100% cis heterosexual male, probably in their 50s, when I communicate directly and they see me, as this like soft looking girl, they're like, wow, she's being very abrasive. They think it's abrasive and they stop listening to what I'm saying. Mm. You're being an aggressive female. And that becomes really frustrating and mm-hmm. eventually exhausting. Yeah. And you can't. <laughs> so how I've coped over the years is I have found coworkers who either have some sort of like relation to that or um, have been supportive over the years. And we have our little like community. It's very subtle and we support each other day to day. So that's kind of how I guess I haven't been burnt out by that. You know, um, while you were talking, also while Josh was talking, uh, I hear I hear the word advocacy in my head. And I'm thinking about things like mentorship and how those things can play a role in quote unquote giving back. I believe that some of the opportunities, a lot of the opportunities that I'm afforded today are because of people that have gone before me, people that have gone through tough times. I'm not saying it's been just so easy for me, but I'm sure it's been easier because of some of the sacrifices and just some of the experiences that, you know, people have gone, you know, gone through before me. Uh, speak a little bit on, you know, just the power of mentorship and helping to eliminate and or minimize some of the barriers that you guys are speaking of. Absolutely. Um, yeah, at the, our fire department, uh, mentorship is pretty big. We have a, a group of African-American firefighters that we look out for each other. Um, before, when we were at, when I was at uh, my private service, I actually worked with Nella there. Um, we would find opportunities, and, you know, on the, the random times when it was me, the black red medic, and a black EMT, we worked together. We used to call ourselves Code Black. Um, <laughs> we go places, we go places, and uh, it would. I was, I was kind of just giving the tips of like how I navigate, you know, these conversations, how I navigate um, small things, uh, nurse reports, and how I navigate um, situations. Because, like Mel said, there's there's definitely um, there's definitely perceptions you get from your patients. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so if I'm working with uh, a certain, if I might call it having to be Caucasians, on a number of times, even if I was a lead medic, uh, they would go to that, my my partner and be like, and they just talk to my partner right away. Mm-hmm. Like, well, the nurse would just talk to the partner. The mm-hmm. doctors would come talk to the part, my partner. And my partner would be like, oh, yeah. I don't know what you say. I'm the EFG, you know. Uh, not EFGs all that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and so like, just navigating those 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 work uh, those uh, situations and having conversations so they don't get frustrated. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to become frustrated. Yeah, the level of patience you need sometimes um, can be um, taxing. And uh, so, but sometimes being able to talk through that and mentor uh, with someone or just 
Yeah, I think under the role of mentor, but just as uh, fostering an environment of community can help you kind of wade through the uh, the that that period of time. The murky waters of the unknown. <laughs> Absolutely. Very poetic. Yeah, and I know Nelly, you had mentioned also you use the word community as well, because I would imagine one of the barriers, uh, even if it's an unspoken barrier, it would be just feeling isolated. You know, when you experience something like that, or you know, I mean, I, I mean, I've I'm an, atten- an attending physician, so I'm a staff doc, and it's not very uncommon for me to walk into a room with with a resident who might be white, and the family will turn right to the resident and start you know talking to them. And I'm okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm secure enough to not really worry about that. But I mean, you, you notice it. And I would imagine somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience feeling like I'm the only one going through this. Maybe this field isn't for me, you know, sound familiar. And then they end up leaving. So uh, how, how, how important has community been for you, Nella? So it's funny that you gave that example. I just like, <laughs> want to put this in there. So we actually... Now that we're the senior people kind of in the, you know, in our field, at least where I work, we take on students, um, students, ride-alongs, um, EMTs who are training to be on the 911 trucks. And we watch some of the students do exactly that. So mm-hmm. they're practicing giving report, you know, when we drop off at the ER or wherever. And we'll have someone walk in and they'll assume they're the nurse or the tech. So my thing is always, we always tell these students, um, me and my partners, you need to start reading badges. You Hmm. need to just assume everyone is a doctor and then ask, are you the doctor or are you taking care of this person? How are you taking care of this person? So you don't come in with assumptions. Mm -hmm. Listen up listeners. (laughs) (laughs) So start paying attention and don't come in with assumptions. I think that's big. As far as community, at least from our station 51, I think a lot of us have remained in touch and remained friends, whether or not we ended up at the same service. So we share family news, family events. We've become friends outside of work, specifically at work and every day. Um, having that community, let's say we have a call and you're like, wow, I'm not sure about like my working diagnosis or if I chose the right medications or whatever. So easily text one of those people that's part of your community and bounce ideas off of them. And mm-hmm. you can be like, this is what I did the last time I saw that, or this is my suggestion. And then just having that as a resource is great. I think it makes us better clinicians to have someone where when you have that community, the communication is open. For sure. And I'd like to expand maybe a little bit too on this like community piece, because I do think I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts of what do you think it means to the communities that we serve to have diversity to the people in EMS who are or firefighting that show up to their house when they're in a time of crisis or need, what do you or what kind of feedback have you gotten from the community? What do you think the community feels about seeing someone that might look actually might look like them or talk like them mm-hmm. or believe the same things that they do? I mean, going back to the whole, you know, I've never met another black firefighter, so <laughs> I um uh, I I've been on a number of calls and. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate and I feel very blessed to be able to work in the city that I grew up in uh, because mm-hmm. often it's a, I feel like it's a privilege to be able to help take care of people that um, are my friend's family members. And so 
um, to be uh, help be a liaison in that you know moment of uh, of uh, pain and, and uncertainty. Um, so when we come through the door. And they're not, most people aren't expecting us to be there physically. <laughs> that's not how they start one of the days ago. Um, I, I think it's a, I, I've heard that this has been a, a sigh of relief because they knew that they can let, they can, we can close those ambulance doors and there's, uh, someone in the back there that's going to look out for them. Like that mm-hmm. extra level. There's still, you know, a sense I, of safety. Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. we, we've all got the crash course and through the pandemic about, the, the healthcare disparities and um, the trust people that don't have with healthcare. You know, I have a little, I have a, a small child right now, and we're looking, we're looking for a dentist. We're looking for a black dentist, uh, a person of color who who was a, a physician, we're, because we want, I want to make sure my kid has this greatest advocacy. Now, mm-hmm. do I do I think that really uh, plays uh, a significant role? After working in healthcare, I think it does. Uh, I think it does. And I think most community members also understand that. So, you know, uh, being a provider that can show up, um, I had someone not too long ago that I showed up, they had a significant physical injury. And when they saw me, and I could say, hey, it's Josh. And then they, they snapped out of their, their pain for a moment, but like, oh, hey, Josh. Because I could look for the guy, you know? Um, and he felt, he's, yeah. he was like, He's like, I just knew at that point I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the long term, <laughs> 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 I'll take care of him. But um, it, it, I think we hear from community members it's significant. I have a very soft spot for immigrants, refugees, people where English might not be their primary language, because I have that experience when we first came here. Um, I am Caucasian, so and I have no accent. Many years of ESL. <laughs> But at like the beginning of my experience living here as an immigrant in the U.S. is a very core part of who I am. Um, I remember the experiences. So when I go, let's say we go to a 911 and it is an immigrant family who has very specific customs that might take a little more time. Their family structure and how they communicate and how decisions are made, especially for transport or you know mm-hmm. what's going to happen mm-hmm. next having that empathy and understanding that they might have a way of doing things that's different than from how the majority of people maybe we see do, I do things i think allows me to slow down and not rush them because they're already going into the situation with a lot of fear and anxiety and the tempo that 911 and a lot of these things that are you know new to people brings a lot of extra anxiety and fear. They don't know how it works. Um, So I think one of the things that happens with empathy is you allow them to also do their own thing. You take the time to let them sort through whatever they need to sort through familially to make decisions or prepare to go somewhere. That might even look like, instead of just being like, I'm not going to use language line because I don't have time we will make time to use mm-hmm. the language line mm-hmm. or we will find someone to help communicate better if the communication's not that great. That's kind of what it looks like. Yeah, and it, it's like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into kind of the meat of a lot of what our episodes entail. And that's, you know, going back to trust, like how do we build trust? And I'm hearing, well, sometimes it takes more time than 
maybe expected, but it's still needed. Sometimes it takes to have a better understanding of the population that you serve. And, you know, I think even stepping back a little bit from the cultural aspect, I mean, just look at the fact that we're all human and we have a lot of the same needs. You know, we all want to be communicated with appropriately. You know, we all need someone to exercise and, and show empathy. Uh, we need some people just to just chill and let us kind of process for a second. You know, yeah. there's a lot going on. And I, I think you guys are really hitting on something powerful because, again, we often talk about trust on our show. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how hard is it to establish trust and establish some sort of working relationship in the moment of crisis? Like, do you guys have any tips? Especially, just to add on to that, yeah. um, you know, we in healthcare, like with physicians, nurses, we're seeing patients in our house, right? You paramedics <laughs> are bringing, EMTs are bringing people to our house, our hospitals, our clinics. Right. Um, <laughs> we, are, we are able to control the environment. And I think that gives us a very different perspective. And what I love about EMS is that you are in the actual homes. You are mm -hmm. the, the trust there is so different than when they come to our house or our the hospital, the clinical setting. So yeah, to, just to add on to what Steve's yeah question was, as far as like pre hospital nine one ones, brand new person you've never met them before. They've never met you before. Trust begins when you begin to listen. Let them tell you their story and what's going on. <laughs> this story might have started three weeks ago, but just letting them know, like letting them have the opportunity to explain what's going on. And then the questions that you respond with in return should relate to what you are listening to and not just going like through like, what are your signs and symptoms? Mm -hmm. What medications do you take? But like taking the time to listen and just try to like understand how they got to where they got to. Mm -hmm. um, and what I, I love asking, so what do you think is going on? Because mm -hmm. you're asking them for their opinion and to also contribute to the understanding of like, what are we potentially treating? What are we working with? And you're also empowering the people you serve, you know, because you go in, they're in a crisis of some type and, you know, you come in with uniform and all the knowledge and the bells and the whistles, stethoscope, et cetera. There's a power imbalance. You saying something as simple as what do you think is going on or, you know, what's meaningful for you? Those kinds of things that shifts the power imbalance. And I, and I think that also helps build the trust, too, because now they're comfortable, you know. So yeah. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of it is. Uh... It gets a lot of things you communicate with just body language as well. Yeah. On top of what Carl was saying, those are what you know. You really nailed it. Um, but body language is, is huge, and so it's it's very common that a lot of us will walk into scenes. We won't run. We won't you know. We'll walk into these emergencies and mm -hmm. uh, calm and even toned um, tempo when we're talking to folks who might be yelling at us or uh, <laughs> might not be listening to us. Um, uh, but you know, there's we just we walk into so many situations in people's homes where the lighting's poor. There are no awkward situations. There are awkward positioning. Um, there's contributing factors that it, it it seems like an episode of like Chicago Fire. <laughs> 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 it, uh, it's uh, there's just weird nuances that um, that you know you, you take a moment to slow down, remember that you're responding to an emergency, but at the same time. 
um, people call 911 without knowing always what to anticipate. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of foreigners and people from, and I'm, I'm, all, I'm also a foreigner. I was born in Kenya. And so I get this. I, I understand because I know people, when they first come here, they're told, hey, something happens, call 911, and people will come and rescue you. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they need to go to the hospital sometimes. So sometimes it's like, hey, this is what we're, we're seeing. And giving them all the information and saying, what would you like to do? You know, here, you know what? If you're with my family, this is what I would do. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. And, Asking them what kind of support they need. Because, yeah, you're right. It mm-hmm. might not be go to the ER. Yeah. Sometimes it is that, but sometimes they're looking for something else, some sort of other support. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just the that's first, first time parent that's that, that they're just dealing with uh, choking on, you know, formula and just coughs it up. And, you know, they're just, you know, they're just worried that they're, they're the worst parents on the planet. So oh, they're calling 911. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, they don't need to go to the ER, but they need that reassurance mm-hmm. um, and having, um, and having, uh, Folks that can take the time and be patient with them through those process, regardless of what time it is and regardless if it's supposed to be dinner. Um, I know people are so apologetic when we show up at odd times. I start at 6 a.m., so they'll apologize because it's early in the day. Wow. And I'm like, I've been up (laughs) since four. I'm here to take care of you. Don't apologize. (laughs) Like, what do you need? (laughs) Wow. Amazing. Uh, I, I, I think about you know, uh, being all things to all people. And when I think about equity and, you know, this is a health equity podcast, I think about the definition of equity. Um, one can look at it as giving people what they need so that they can have an equal chance to be successful. And so I see when you guys go into the homes of families that are in need, uh, likely some sort of medical need, it's not a, I'm going to go in with my script and make sure I get all my questions answered and check all of my personal boxes so that I can, you know, close the case out. But it's more of a, it's a partnership, it's a relationship. And um, it's what do you need at this time and listening and yeah. Mm-hmm. And by the way, listeners, we didn't set them up. They, this is, this is, we didn't feed them lines. This is just so in line with a lot of things that we talk about. And this is just really good. Yeah. And I just want to thank you both again for taking the time to come here, tell us your stories, Hmm. provide some background on what it means to be a pre-hospital healthcare provider, because I think that's a whole new world for probably a lot of our listeners that they don't even know about. So um, again, just thank you so much for being here. Thank you for everything that you do every single day as well. And just know that as someone who's also involved in EMS, just I have so much respect for everyone who's out there in the streets. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is wonderful. Um, we, we work in a weird profession. So sharing some stories about why we love working and what we do um, is, uh, is a treat for, for me. Hmm. Yes, thank you for having us. Having a space where we can even discuss things like this is very affirmating. Like it, it feels good to know that there are other people who think about and worry about the same things. Well, I've, I've truly been educated and uh, inspired to to keep taking the message out to the community. Uh, there are some good people in the world that are here to help and they will be there when you call. So thank you, Josh. Thank you, Nella. Thank you. Thank you. Off the Charts is a production of Health Partners and Park Nicolet. It is recorded by Jimmy Bellamy with creative by Peggy Arnson, Tina Long, 
Tim Myers and Jeff Jondal. Production services provided by Matriarch Digital Media. Our theme music is by Ryan Ike.